You like them old Uncle Butchie tales every once in a while. Here, I got one for you. The Uncle Butchie story is a long one. This is a long one now. We're still going. It's the same old Uncle Butchie here that's still weaving this one around. Hey, what's up, everybody? Keith Billick here. It's great to be back with you, and it's great to be home again. As many of you remember from the last episode, I was just about to embark on an interview-gathering road trip through uh, Virginia and Pennsylvania. Well, I have done that, and I am uh, returning with some hot, fresh interviews to serve to you as well. I even got to go to Washington, D.C. for a day, where uh, you'll all be happy to know I, I lobbied Congress in an effort to have them recognize a, uh, a national banjo holiday. And, and when I say lobbied Congress, I mean I, I went in there and started yelling about it and security was involved and they, they removed me from the premises. I, I think that means they're considering my motion. So uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll hear about that any day now. But regardless, I was able to meet up with some great, fantastic banjo players record some interviews, and uh, this is going to be the first one of those. But you know what I do need to do first? Uh, everyone knows what I think of my lovely, talented Patreon supporters of the show. I do need to recognize uh, this episode's official supporter of the show, that is Michelle Myers. Michelle started playing banjo about 10 years ago in Las Vegas, but now finds herself in the San Diego area. Her favorite banjoist is Mike Bont of Green Sky Bluegrass, who, of course, we all know was featured on the show way back in the early days, and I'm proud to say is a fellow Michigan banjo player. So, Michelle, thank you so much for your support. It means a lot to me, and uh, keep up with the banjo playing. And in case you all didn't know, the way to support the show is to go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast become an official supporter of the show for just a measly few bucks a month and you get wonderful prizes in return so once again go check that out patreon.com slash banjo podcast that helps me keep the lights on here at picky fingers hq and i truly appreciate it other ways to support the show head over to banjopodcast.com to get your world famous official picky fingers logo t-shirts and stickers or you can uh Drop the show an email. That's pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. Today's featured guest is legendary banjoist Butch Robbins. Butch is best known for playing with Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys, the Newgrass Revival, and with rock and roll legend Leon Russell. He also recorded several groundbreaking albums, all of which I highly recommend, by the way. Butch is also very well documented as having some strong opinions about music and as someone who has played both with the 
father of the music in Bill Monroe and also played a lot of his own music, which ended up being pretty progressive. So he has ended up with some pretty interesting perspectives based on his decades of experience as a professional banjoist. Two other things to mention. Uh, This was recorded during my road trip to Virginia at the home of Butch's longtime friend, uh, Joanne McGowan. So thanks to Joanne for hosting this interview. And then also Butch made it very clear that he did not want anything edited out to be taken out of context. And so here it is, the interview in all of its unprocessed, raw, all organic glory. So give a big picky fingers welcome to Butch Robbins. Well, Butch, I know I'm not alone in saying that I really look up to you and admire your plan. So I really appreciate you taking the time out and uh, meeting with me to to speak with you here. It's an honor to meet you. Yeah, thanks. Well, thank you. So you are actually pretty documented in terms of a lot of your past. You were interviewed in the Masters of the Five String book. So I don't I don't even feel the need to go over a lot of like your early history. I just want to get right into what makes your banjo playing yours and and what is unique about your playing so i guess maybe the first question would be do you have an opinion about what it is about your playing that makes you unique i can tell you how it came about i would love to hear it yeah i've thought about this a lot i I told you about uh having run into a young fellow trevor holder of course yeah we love we love trevor he's been on the show and uh just Gosh, one heck of a musician. Um, but anyhow, he got, he got the wheels turning in my head, and he had come up here initially with a young lady, Tatiana Hargraves. Yeah, wonderful fiddler. Oh, man. I mean, we sat right in this room. I think it was December 16th uh, of this past December 16th, and it was the first time I'd been around any young musicians like that in, golly, years. Uh-huh. And... Uh, they came in and they had asked, you know, if they could come by and play some. And uh, she sat here and played. The first tune she played was Leather Britches. Mm-hmm. And she played it. There wasn't, I mean, <laughs> I, I've become very opinionated about music and everything. <laughs> and I mean, she was true to the tune as it was played. There weren't passing chords that didn't need to be there, which had been interjected because the melody went up and hit one line that may have had a note or one note that may have been a note in a couple of different chords. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like sort of with the old Joe Clark. I gave up on playing old Joe Clark where he can say, fare thee well, old Joe Clark, fare thee well, I say. And that say goes down to a D note rather than a G, you know, when you're playing in the key of A. But anyhow, she played all this stuff, and it was wonderful. And she got such a sound. It was like, uh, I mean, (laughs) I played with a guy named Kenny Baker, and he got some of the most beautiful sound out of a fiddle that I ever heard in my life. And she got sound much more akin to Kenny's sound than any of the old-time fiddlers I'd ever heard. And we sat in this very place. I think they got here about noon. Mm -hmm. And 
with the exception of taking time out to eat a couple of slices of pizza, we played solid till about 7.30 that evening. Oh, how wonderful. And I mean, to tell you, it lit a fire under me, and I've been excited about it. I've been thinking a lot about where I came from as a musician. You know, I engaged myself for years in this, in a twisted journey around the world, trying to achieve some kind of marketable celebrity for myself out there, uh-huh. you know, something that that, that I could uh, earn enough coins to make a living out of it. And uh, in that... <laughs> I don't know what really I was trying to do. I was just trying to be the best that I could at what I did there. But in my quest trying to be the best, in my own head, I neglected the uh, greatest attribute of string band music, I think, that we have in this country today. And I won't call it bluegrass at all. I'm just talking about string band music in general. Because what it is is a, a collage of traditional music's from all over the world that came to the United States and incorporated themselves into what we've got now as American traditional string band music out there. Yeah. So you said you've been neglecting the most important thing. I guess, what what were you doing and how does that compare to what, what you say you're neglecting? Well, the thing I'm neglecting is, is uh, I don't feel so bad about that anymore. And that's the music as a social skill. Because I think that's the greatest attribute of string band music at this point in time. But, you know, I, I was trying to be some kind of a imagining myself as a musical artist out there who happened to play banjo. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why the tunes came out of me when I was a teenager, like the 40 Years Late tunes and yeah. and, and things like that. That music was happening then, then back in the late 60s because that was just a part of what I was. Somehow or another, I had achieved a point then that I could sort of express myself with a musical instrument. Anyhow. But you but you think that somehow doing that made you antisocial? I don't think I'm necessarily antisocial. I just don't care a lot for what's out there to be indulged in <laughs> anymore. You know, it's like with string band music. I love to get together with three or four people. I mean, not like those youngsters that came up here to play. You know, and they're all in their 20s, and here I am in my 70s now. So, you know, I get to sit here and pick with them, and that's exciting to me. Yeah. I can speak with them. But for the most part, to go out and to play in band situations or ensemble situations right now, there's there's a lot of that stuff that, that, that it just really doesn't excite me anymore. I'll take you back to the one of the first things you said about Tatiana's playing was that she, she's able to really play a precise melody and express that accurately and i think i've heard you say that about your own playing that that was always your goal you were talking about it in the context of you can't play what noam pakelny does and that all you play is the melody but it sounds like that's what you look for so how did you develop the ability to do that or how did you approach uh, that, doing that, that that was a little bit disjointed right there to me because i didn't say anything about noam pakelny not being able to play the melody yeah i didn't mean to to suggest well, let's, that let's just clarify that too because he absolutely when he takes that degree of discipline i mean just simply listen to him and Stuart duncan on their interpretation of some of the kenny baker music they did a few years ago so oh yeah anyhow so so take me back to the question that was being asked it seems like you value the ability to to really nail a precise and correct melody and i've heard you say about your own playing is that all you do is play the melody, and it's all melody. Well, so, well, 
To an extent, yes, that's mm-hmm. true. That's true because it's the simplest. It's the basis of what I do. But in developing the style that I developed to play, when I first met Carlton Haney, he asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, I want to be the greatest banjo player that ever was. You know, here I am, 14, 15 years old, uh-huh. spouting off like that. <laughs> and he said, well, that's simple. All you got to do is learn to play your banjo the way Bill Monroe plays his mandolin. Ooh. So it led me into a study of that. And, and Bill Monroe was really an acquired taste for me. When I was a real youngster, when we would go to my grandfather's house, he had all these old 78 Charlie and Bill Monroe records. And I got to hear the style of Bill Monroe when he played exclusively tremolo, mm-hmm. you know, on the mandolin. He didn't have all those heavy down strokes and the, and the bluesy-oriented lines and the, and the phrasing and the... This the, is the Monroe Brothers <laughs> material that you're talking correct. about right now? It was all just on this lightning fast tremolo. I mean, he could make. Oh yeah. Uh, he he could sustain a note the same way a, a, a fiddle player can do it with their fiddle bow, is to hold a note out seemingly forever. You know that right. way. And that's something that I found some ways of emulating it on the banjo, but I could never never really achieve it to that degree. But. I'd made my way through the Newgrass Revival. I, I, I thought I was taking a very temporary job there when I was called uh, to fill in. They said, you know the material, and you can help us out till we find somebody. And back then, I was freelancing, so yeah. Anyhow, I spent some time with them. And we should clarify that you were, you were playing bass with them. I was playing them. bass yeah. with them, yeah. And that completely took me away, because they had a great banjo player, you know, in Courtney Johnson. Of course. Um uh, one of the wildest things I ever tried to do in my life was play harmony to Courtney Johnson. And they had this arrangement of a tune called Doing My Time. Sure. And I mean to tell you, we did it over at Star Day. I think Ebo was still in the band at that point. I just went into their session that they had. I remember I did a couple of cuts with them when they were trying to finish up that album before they came up to us wanting us to duplicate Jonathan Livingston Seagull or something like that. But anyhow, they wanted me to play twin with this thing, with Courtney on doing my time. And they had a real rock and roll driving version of yeah. that thing, you know. And, and it was one of the wildest things I ever done. And and it dawned on me, you know, after a period of time in that band that I just wasn't a bass player, you know. And when I went to Sam to tell him, you know, that I, I wanted to quit, and that was one of the reasons that I just ain't a bass player, and he said, I told me I was doing fine, you know, and everything. And I said, no, man. I said, I've heard Carl Radle and Duck Dunn and some of those, <laughs> some real bass players play, and I ain't no bass player. Yeah. And, you know, during the course of that time while I'd been with the revival, Sam, he had often, there would be comments made about Bill Monroe and everything, and Sam really admired him, you know, as a musical artist out there, as a musician for what he had done and everything. And, 
you know, he'd bring him up around me, and I said, well, I tried to work for him in 1967, and it didn't work out for me, you know. I, I, I just don't have it. Sam said, forget all that. <laughs> he said, listen to the man as the musician he is. Listen to what he's done musically out there. And that was one of the things, you know, that I thought of when Monroe came and asked me when Bill Holden was was quitting and going back to Texas, and Monroe said, you know, uh, asked me if I'd like to to become a bluegrass boy again. And I said, well, we tried that about 10 years ago, and yeah. it didn't work out too well. And he said, yeah, but we both growed a whole lot since then, you know. <laughs> so so anyhow, I went, and it was just like this accelerated time of, it wasn't long after that. It was within four to six months after that that I got this banjo that I have, this RB4. Uh, all original was in mint condition, just like a new banjo. I was the one who got to break mm -hmm. it in across the board. And... Um, and being with Monroe there and being, um, <laughs> you like them old Uncle Butchie tales every once in a while. Here, I got one for you. Yeah. I saw Earl Scruggs playing on television on them Martha White shows when I was a real young fella. And I said, I can do what that guy's doing. I was unconsciously incompetent. I didn't even know what I didn't know. Mm-hmm. But I figured, here, these guys got a TV show riding around in a bus and everything. It's better than living in a trailer park, you know. So that was sort of what was going to happen. And somehow or another, about six months, within six, eight months of that, a banjo wound up in my lap. It was a little open back that my dad bought at Hubert Swice Goods Barbershop in Fletcher, North Carolina. And he sewed the head up with fishing line, uh -huh. went next door to the drugstore, got a set of Bell brand strings. Took him home, an old fella up the road from us, Roy Alexander, showed the old man where to put the bridge. You know, there was a bridge that had been taped to the neck of the thing. Where to put the bridge, how to get the strings on it, right? and, and halfway tune it up. And it wasn't long after that that uh, we found an old fella named Homer Israel around there, and he had a three-finger roll that was a fluid three-finger roll. And my dad knew enough about guitar and mandolin that he was able to show me on a banjo neck that you have the same way as a guitar and other things, three major chord structure forms yeah. out there that you use. And we figured them out. And my dad started teaching me how to do that. And then I just play, all he'd let me play is rolls, play the chords and rolls while yeah. he was singing or, you know. How old were you when this was going down? I uh, got my banjo in December. Uh, 18th of 1962, I think. So I would have been 13 hmm. <clears throat> when I got got my Gibson banjo. Maybe uh, this is an unrelated... Oh, go ahead. The yeah, Uncle yeah. Butchie story is a long one. This is a long one now. <laughs> All right. I'll make myself comfy here. All right. Well, be sure to write your question down there so you can come back to them when you right got on, something right like on. that. Anyhow, so after about six or eight months of doing that set there with my dad, I had gotten fluid to the point that I could play that role and do the chord song changes under songs that he was singing. And I was good enough to go up the road to Clay Ledford's house up there and pick along with him and accompany him when he was singing them old Hank Williams songs he sung. As long I, as he knew how to I make was, the shapes, yeah. I was becoming consciously incompetent. <laughs> I was beginning to find out what I didn't know. Mm-hmm. So I, I got kept on going, and like I said, I got a decent banjo. You know, my mom and dad got me a, a banjo for for Christmas uh, that year. 
I started playing in contests and I started winning contests here and there and various things. And and by the time I got out of high school, Bill Monroe hired me right out of high school. I wound up working the first Bean Blossom Festival. I'd become acquainted with him through Carlton Haney and at the Bluegrass Festivals up here at Fincastle uh, that were held, the first two of those, and yeah. all of that stuff. And I just kept on going here, and uh, he hired me to come to Nashville, Tennessee. It didn't work out and everything. And I came back up to this part of the country to try to dodge the draft because Vietnam was big time then. Went to a technical school for a couple of years. Didn't do no good. They drafted me as soon as I got out anyhow. and wound yeah. up uh, going in the military in 1969. And I was able to spend a couple of years with Snuffy Jenkins down there, Snuffy Jenkins and Pappy Sherrill in Columbia, South Carolina, a lady named Pat Aarons. Well, Bill Haney's Bill Haney, who was Don Reno's cousin, had helped me get into special services down there. Okay. He introduced me to Pat Aarons, who was uh she had written the books on Snuffy and Pappy back in those days, and she was like a folklorist in that area. And and then she's the one who had the first gathering where Snuffy and Pappy showed up, and I was able to meet them. Wow. And I got to spend a couple of years of that. Uh, six months after I got out of the military, I went to Nashville, Tennessee. And within um, another six months to a year after that, I wound up doing major-scale sessions with folks. Tut Taylor got me into a lot of things down there. and. Evidently, I did the job all right. I wound up on recording sessions with folks like Leon Russell. Yeah, who's as big as it gets? I had become consciously competent. We're still going. This is the same old Uncle Butcher here that's still weaving keep this going. one around. Keep going. Well, I go out there, man, and I try to fly. And I do in a hundred different ways. I played with every kind of music. I was telling you in the Las Vegas with the show band music out there. Uh, most of the bluegrassers. I uh, had a couple of them I wouldn't work for, but I was able to help Jim and Jesse out a good bit if they needed a bass player or Wilma Lee and Stoney or something. If they needed a bass player, I'd go do that. If they needed a banjo player, I could go do that. I recorded stuff with Keith McReynolds. I was, or not Keith McReynolds, with Jesse McReynolds. I did his fiddle album for him and everything. Just a utility musician around, and I was starting to get quite busy and everything. Wound up taking a job with Wilma Lee and Stoney Cooper after I'd gotten out of the revival in that high-flying world, and I just I was sort of going in circles then because I was still ready to fly, but uh, there were a lot of contributing factors that said I didn't need to be doing that anymore. And I stayed till about three or four months after Stoney passed away. He's the greatest man I ever worked for in my life right there, most appreciative band leader I ever worked for. Hmm. And... Um, I wound up taking the job with Bill Monroe. And there's old, an old Native American saying that says, when a man loses the feel of the earth under his feet, he loses his soul. 
And pretty much I had done that at that point. I mean, I'd already made, I don't know if you're familiar with any of my records, but I came out with a record called 40 Years Late Yeah, that had some of the early on stuff that I'd written. But the second record I did was kind of off the wall. That's the one I had Bela Fleck come in and play a banjo part on one of my mandolin tunes. That's the fragments of my imagination. That's fragments of my imagination. I mean, I was floating out there in the world. I mean, you can hear it in the music. went back to work for Monroe and I got this banjo and I started for that first year to a year and a half Randy Davis being in the band there he was the quintessential bluegrass boy in my opinion he looked the part he acted the part and he was exceptional in the part about a year a year and a half into it I'd started I'd explored my banjo enough to realize that my banjo was a whole lot better banjo than I was ever going to be as a banjo player (laughs) And I'd also started zeroing in on the musical artistry of Bill Monroe. Uh-huh. I'd been up with him at four o'clock in the morning, sitting over on the couch, trying to figure out how to play Stony Lonesome. Ask him how he came about that tune, how to play, you know, it was so violent sounding in the beginning and everything. He looked back across the aisle to me and he said, well, you know, I never wrote a tune in my life. And I said, I don't understand. What do you mean by that? And he said, well, that music's all out out there in the air all around us. I just happen to be the first one to pull it out. Hmm. I mean, that's something you'd hear from an Eastern musician playing a sitar or something like that. That's not what's supposed to come out of one of the most hard-case son-of-a-guns I ever worked for in my life. But I started zeroing in on his musical artistry. And all of a sudden, that thing that I told Carlton I wanted to do, it came to me, uh, Bill Monroe and Tex Logan were up in the front of the bus at some festival we were at, and I was laying back in my bunk. And they started fooling around with a tune called Big Springs, that they wound up calling Big Springs. And they would work through it. I think Tex had a part of it when he wrote in there and Bill, and it was just another one of those, I talk about uh, uh, um, sharing dreams, you know, we were like, dream partners with Monroe in that creative process when he'd get somebody like that to work on a tune. You know, you play a little bit like it. Oh, now work it around like you did there a few minutes ago over in this other thing, you know, and he'd have you, he'd just be pulling it out of you to get you to write the tune in a lot of cases. Yeah. And that's what the episode was. So I'm laying back here in my bunk, and the whole time they're doing this, I'm seeing it on my banjo fingerboard playing out just laying there with my eyes closed. I'm watching it. (laughs) And they had three, four parts to the thing, and they had this little descending passage. 
uh, interlude in between all the passages. They got it done, and they played it through about a couple of times, and I walked over into, out into the lounge, and I got my banjo out of the case, and I went up there, and I sat down, and I played it to them. I had become unconsciously competent. And that's that four-phase realm I've just told you about with Uncle Butchie, going when the understanding comes out there. You go from unconsciously incompetent to consciously incompetent to consciously competent. And when you truly get to be, I think, I think I'm a musical artist now. I really do. I think I've, the ensemble work that I've put together and everything else, I think I've painted some pretty decent pictures. And there have been some of them that way and, and uh, just the nature of the tunes that I write as well. So I, I feel good about that. I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased with myself inside. And for somebody who's uh, been clinically diagnosed with manic depression for half a century now, mm-hmm. that's, I think, remarkable. I think so too, and I couldn't agree more that you've done a good job of expressing yourself. Those early albums that you mentioned, those are a, a great example of it. Let's go back to what Carlton Haney told you about how to become the best bluegrass banjo player. You just channeled, did you say channel Bill Monroe on your banjo? Is yes. that the way he, he put said it? you play your banjo like Bill Monroe plays his mandolin. Let's really focus in on that. What does that mean to you and how did you uh, well, do I, that? I perceived it start happening, you know, in that series of videos I did for Radford University. I talk about the first. Maybe uh, from 1945 until 1958 to 60, somewhere along in there. I think that was the lifespan of the primal form of bluegrass music. I think after Bill Keith was introduced to the situation, and not long after that, Richard Green, who Stephen Grappelli called the greatest jazz violinist the North American continent ever produced, hmm. Between those two guys, Monroe's music did a shift. And I think he, it was because he saw the attention. You know, he had been knocked off his musical high horse by 1958. You know, there were bands like uh, uh, the uh, Who's a Cherokee Cowboy? The country music bands that were coming along by the late 50s, they were just getting absolutely phenomenal. Ernest Hubb had a great band. A lot of them had picked up these old Bob Wills guys. Okay. And, uh, ah, shucks, that one just got past me right there. But anyhow, Monroe had been knocked off of that musical high horse he had been riding on for the first 
10, 15 years he had been down there. He yeah. was a, the stellar musician of the Grand Ole Opry. The resentment was strong with the folks like Sam and Kurt McGee. You know, that that's why they said he didn't play country music. He didn't play the music they played. He played that bluegrass music. Uh-huh. But um, this is going to haunt me now till I think of that guy's name. But anyhow, Monroe sort of wasn't that king of the heap no more. Right. But when he rediscovered in those old fiddle tunes, like the sailor's hornpipe that Bill Keith brought in there, like the way of Richard Green playing the Orange Blossom Special, and then he started working on things like the Lonesome Moonlight Waltz or Kentucky Moonlight Waltz, he started calling it back then. Uh, Crossing the Cumberlands happened then that Lamar Greer happened there. There's a great banjo tune right there. And David Greer sent me a copy of his dad doing that somewhere in New York or Baltimore, somewhere in the Northeast. I, I, I mean, there's no, he played it a lot faster than I did, but I mean, he played that tune just wonderfully. Huh. Um, uh, you know, those tunes came along and it allowed Monroe to start getting back up on that musical high horse. And that's when I say his music had started being reborn as an elevated art form. And then by 1967, by the fall of 67, Kenny Baker had come back to him on a full-time basis and became his greatest interpreter for the better part of 20 years there. Right. I mean, if you, back in those days, if you had heard Kenny Baker play Jerusalem Ridge and Bill Monroe play Jerusalem Ridge, there's a good chance you would have thought it was two different tunes. Baker had a way of interpreting those tunes that, and, and such a tone and a sound that went along with them that were, you know, to play a banjo along with something like what he did, it was, it was, I, I mean, it was a real blessing that I was in, into there. I certainly didn't appreciate it as much as I should have. But, but nevertheless, it was, it was your job to interpret it. So how did you go about doing that and what made your style uh, uh, such a good fit for his band? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I can I, I can try to play you some of it right here. I was yeah, able I to do to some of it on the uh, thing, but it started out with the fiddle music, trying to interpret the fiddle music, because it didn't take me long at all to realize he just didn't give a hoot for anything about banjo tunes. I mean, stuff, you know, all the... Was yeah. his train 45 or Foggy Mountain Breakdown? He, <laughs> I mean, that didn't show a lot for him. So he started showing me the tunes, and one of the first ones I could remember, and when he taught me this, they only played two parts to it, and that was uh, Dusty Miller. And he started, do you remember the album, The Bluegrass Time, I think it was, in 1967 or so that came out, had Byron Burline on the cover? But he wasn't on it. It was actually the Richard Green. Oh, interesting band there but they did dusty miller and okay. that's one that i'd learned from bill and i will go ahead and play the third part i've learned to do it since then
<laughs> How do we feel about that one? Sounded wonderful I, it's, to me. It's it's close. I mean, I yeah. had the clams in there and a few, <laughs> yeah. but that's. I mean, good God. Yeah. All right. So we're talking about. So it started like that, and it got into the. The dealing with the tunes like Sally Gooden. I once put together a, a medley of Sally Gooden and Gray Eagle back to back, and I, I don't think I'm going to try to play. I'll play you the Sally Gooden part of that today okay. because that's what came from Monroe. Uh-huh. You know, Gray Eagle back in those days, if you hear Otis Burris in years past when he wrote one Galax playing Gray Eagle, there weren't but two parts to it. Mm-hmm. It's the same way with Sally Gooden. There aren't but two parts of it. But Monroe would tell you, he said, oh, well, you play that thing down here low like this, you know, and play it down in the low range, and then you work it around itself a little bit, and then you work it up high, and then you play it around itself down there a little bit, and you played it. <laughs> so so that's sort of what you do with a tune like this. And this was another follow-up on that that, you know, I was learning about the way he would go into interpreting things. Because the real trick to his playing, and I, I don't know whether I got to this before, but I, I talked about him going to Chicago and learning. You know, in some of the early uh, interviews with Ralph Rensler, he said there was jazz in his music. Mm-hmm. Well, he wasn't talking about post-Dave Brubeck jazz. <laughs> He was talking about the Dixieland jazz that he heard in Chicago. You got to remember that was the end of the Roaring Twenties, and that Dixieland jazz, which had sound, which had flappers going all over the country dancing and everything, one of the most exciting musics that ever came along here. To me, that's where the basis of the rhythm of Monroe's music came from. Was out of that black. Dixieland jazz music that played for the flappers Interesting. when he got there. And when Earl went to him, and, a, and Earl stabilized the tempo in the bands. Hmm. And, I mean, if you listen to some of the older stuff like Crying Holy Unto the Lord that they did early, it sounds like, you know, the wailing of, of black gospel singers. Crying holy, holy, holy unto my Lord, unto my Lord, crying holy unto my Lord, holy unto my Lord. Holy it's just kind of wild sounding to me in those first parts, and the tempos went up and down. After Earl came in, that didn't happen anymore. And Lester Flat certainly didn't do it. He had no pulsation to his guitar playing. He was, you know, he played that thumb and finger pick, but it was a, a, a an accompanying style yeah. guitar. Yeah. At that point, uh, and Monroe hadn't developed his chop fully at that point yet. It just stabilized the tempos there. Okay. And and James told me at a point. I will play Sally Gooden for you here in a second. But James told me at a point that when his dad, after Earl had left the band, and when Bill would go out and feed the livestock in the morning out on the farm and everything, he'd come back in, get his mandolin out, go sit down on the foot of his bed and sit there and do dance steps in the floor and play rhythm with his mandolin to it. And they were developing. So when you start hearing that mandolin technique, when you listen to the second cut of Blue Moon of Kentucky, the original cut back in the 40s, the second cut of it where the emphasis on the two of the one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two. He was starting the emphasis of stuff off like that. And see, that was one of the unique things about him was the fact that each tune not only had its own unique melody, its own unique set of words out there, but it also had its own unique rhythm. 
And if you were playing Rawhide or Bluegrass Breakdown or Molly and Ten Brooks, he'd want you, you'd almost push on that edge, the front edge of that backbeat to make that happen. It would just have a little extra little out front snap in it there. Okay. The bass player held the tempo. That didn't do anything to the tempo. It's just like Earl, you know, Earl, if you put him on a scope out there, in most cases, he's playing five to 10 milliseconds in front of the beat. Mm-hmm. But, he had a bass player that maintained that tempo to the point that he could do that. There was always that slight yeah, offset They were there. playing yeah. in time with each other. They were just slightly out of sync. And the way he did it right in front of the beat just made a brilliance to it that nobody else was ever able to achieve. And you think that helped cement Monroe's approach to, to rhythm, too? You, you said that James told you that it was only after Earl had joined the band well, that he noticed. Earl stabilized the tempos. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't Earl that had it had a rhythm to him. He didn't have a rhythm. He had a he had a timing thing that was going yeah. on there, and you can tell from the way Monroe's band was in them days. I mean, they had to have rehearsed. When you hear the the vocal work on "Shine Hallelujah Shine," and I'm traveling on and on, and and some of those other things. I mean, that had to be rehearsed to the same degree that we saw the Flat and Scruggs band rehearsed when they were doing the Martha White TV shows. Yeah. Because, I mean, those things were choreographed. Yeah, yeah it's Nobody, a tight show. I, it's yeah. just, you know, it was wonderful out there. But I think, you know, with Monroe, he learned to, to do that. So every tune not only had, like I said, those unique things, but they had their own rhythm. And, you, and if you were playing something like Road to Columbus or uh, Gold Rush, um, that would... Um, have played um, played that right on the beat and the back beat. If you had played something like uh, uh, Dark as the Night and Blue as the Day, there'd been a little bit of an afterthought to it. It would sort of pull at itself. Yeah. You listen to A Good Woman's Love. It's all in three-quarter time and all the way through it. I was a rover on land and on sea till a good woman loved. That's a hard three-quarter right there. Yeah. But when it goes to the chorus, instead of roaming, I go home, and it changes. It's got a bounce to it then. Yeah. Still yeah. in three-quarter time. Tempo hasn't yeah. changed, but the, the rhythm changes. That heartbeat life of it changes in there. And that was what would made him so unique there and why that that that's what defines the music form that was exclusively his from 1945 to 1965. That's the definitive version of it. You know, before then, it was called hillbilly. It was called country. Then it became bluegrass with two words. Then it became roots music, bluegrass with one word, newgrass music. Mm. You know, I mean... All, all of these versions of string band music will achieve a certain degree of popularity from time to time. And somewhere along in it, some other guys will write the classics. But, you know, I saw it my whole life out here. The thing that's really going to carry this stuff along is its value as a social skill. You know, I saw it all my life from Galax to Bean Blossom and everywhere in between. You know, out in the parking lot, you've got a... a, a, a cab driver from London and an architect from Tokyo and a DJ from Los Angeles and a fiddle player from Birmingham and a bass player. It's a day laborer from over here in Bluefield. Yeah. All get together in a pile and, and play those old standards that are out there. And when they do, there's this saying, there are about them that's much the same as what Christian people say they're experiencing when they say they're having fellowship. 
It's that same type thing. And that's where that value as a social skill comes in there to be able to play with those confines in those settings because it's that value is a social skill that's going to take it. It's not going to become anybody who's a hit today or was a hit yesterday. I mean, the only thing that I think Billy Strings likes right now is his Blue Moon of Kentucky. Oh, a, a hit, you, know, you mean? In, in terms no, of a, a Not hit a hit, a... I mean, it's the 16th most recorded song of all time, mm. or it was the last time I looked. It's going to take one, there, yeah. one of those. But to me, he's the most exciting thing in string band music in existence today. far and away i mean look at what he's the crowds he's drawing out there and ain't nobody comparing him to tony rice as a guitar player you know he doesn't have to fight that hell that's a battle that every other guitar player that's out there from david greer on up and down the horn out there has to fight that battle of always you know being behind the name tony rice is going to get mentioned anytime they mention a great guitar player but you ain't hearing that with billy strings well he always has his his critics but we're really proud of him he's a fellow michigan boy so so we're uh we're thrilled to death to see all the places he's gone it's it's incredible i always said he's reinforcement of a belief i've had for years that in order for bluegrass music to achieve a mainstream or this acoustic string band music they call bluegrass to achieve a me a presence out there in the mainstream media, mm-hmm. it's got to internally generate a star. It ain't going to be somebody's come over here and become a star in another music form or something else and then come back to their roots because that's got a demeaning connotation in the first place, saying if your roots was that good, why'd you leave it in the first place? But he's the one, you know, Michael Cleveland, Cleveland's another one out there to do it. His talent supersedes his handicap. Right. You never think of Ray Charles as a blind piano player. He's a musical artist out there. Same right. way with Stevie Wonder. Of course. Their talent superseded their handicap. And that's the way it is with Michael. That young man, it, well, oh, yeah, he's, he's getting a few man. years on him now, but he is a phenomenon. Yeah. And just a great guy. Just really. What was I going to do? I was going to play Sally Gooden for you. What, yeah. What's going on?
something like that right there. Yeah, yeah, that was it. I want to ask you more about uh, rhythm because you were describing the the relationship between the bass and the banjo and how you can get a certain feel for drive and everything like that. I'd like you to describe your own sense of rhythm with that. And do you view yourself as a ahead of the beat kind of kind of player? I just think I play a pure lead. I don't play anything that has anything to do with setting any rhythm or tempo, either one. Hmm. I don't have that with my right hand anymore. Hmm. I don't know that I ever really did. You know, and, and this is, I, I, this is I, I say all kinds of foolish things when I get out here, and you might want to cut this all the way out for me because I'm sort of embarrassed about this. But, you know, I knew all those old cats, Snuffy and all them. I had Snuffy tell me about picking up the banjo stuff from the, the ones before him, Rex Brooks and Smith Hammett and uh, all of that. I come along to that place, you know, Carlton Haney said, <laughs> and this is preposterous, this is not what happened, but he was telling a tale on some Nashville show I saw one time. Uh, he had uh, Bill Clifton and Dale McCurry cornered over here telling him about my first ever audition for Bill Monroe. About your yeah audition? Yeah. And he said, you know, because he introduced me to Bill Monroe up here at the opening of the Melrose Shopping Center. He had Bill okay. Monroe in for the uh, grand opening of that. And that was the first one. But when Carlton says I was 18 years old in the video, but the reality was I was like 15, mm -hmm. 16 at that point. Uh, it was before the first Fincastle Festival. I, I, I can't say that. <laughs> But he said he introduced me to Bill and said, the boy wants to, to get a job with you, you know, or might like to come to work to you someday. And Bill had me play for him. And Carlton says that I got out and started playing something like Earl Scruggs had played, and I got through with it. And, and Bill looked at me and said, well, I don't believe I'd play that like that. <laughs> okay. So I come back at him, and I'm playing something a little bit like Don Reno. He is another one of my heroes back in them days, you know. Bill, I don't believe I'd play something like that. I came back maybe with Sonny Osborne or Bill Emerson or some of those guys, other guys that I'd heard out there, Alan Shelton. Bill kept saying, I don't believe I'd play that. And I said, well, how do I play it? How should I play it? He said, well, you need to play it like yourself. And I said, well, how do you do that? And he said, well, first you learn everything all them other guys did, and then don't do it. <laughs>
Yeah. What is that piece? Rural Retreat. That was the one I'm where I was familiar. broke down in a snowstorm right below Withful, Virginia. Huh. And called the state police to come by, and they were had called a wrecker. I was had headed out to Nashville and didn't make it but about 40 miles down the road. But uh, I sat there and wrote that tune in the car. And uh, so I got back to they towed my car in, and I went in with the record and everything, and uh, I called my dad to come and get me. This is like 1 o'clock in the morning. And he came down there with him, picked me up, took me back by his house, and he said, or said, I want you to go by my house. I played that tune on the way back and record that before I take you home, Yeah, which he did. And uh, so a couple of three or four years after that, sometime at some point after that, uh, I'd gotten rounder and said something about me doing a second record for him, you know. And I went over to see my dad. He asked me how things is going. I said, rounders contacted me, said they'd like to do another record. He said, well, what do you think? And he said, well, I'd love to do it, but I'm about 11 tunes short on a 12-tune <laughs> album, you yeah. know. And he said, well, why don't you play that one on it that you played down in the snowstorm uh -huh. that time? And that was one of the tunes that it's wound up piece. on that record. But he had to play it back for me on the... You had to relearn it from yourself? Yeah, I had to relearn <laughs> it from myself. I've got a lot of them like that. I didn't have that same degree of memory that Monroe had. Hey folks, Keith here, just taking a quick break from the episode, but I'll be right back with the rest of it. I did just want to mention that if you are looking to have your dream banjo built, or if you just need some of the top quality components to add to a project or an existing banjo, I couldn't recommend anyone more than Sullivan Banjos. Sullivan has been one of the top names in the banjo industry for decades. And Eric Sullivan down in Alabama brings all that experience and adds his personal customized touch to make sure that you are getting the banjo of your dreams. Whether you are looking for a tried and true traditional design, or if you want to get a bit more uh, imaginative, chances are if you can dream it, Eric can build it. I know that's true because I've been playing my own Sullivan custom banjo since 2004. So give Eric Sullivan at Sullivan Banjos a call at 502-365-5022. Visit them on the web at sullivanbanjo.com or email at sullivanbanjo at gmail.com. Now, once you have that Sullivan Banjo in your hands, the best way to learn it that I recommend is with Peghead Nation's online streaming video courses. You can learn bluegrass, old time, and many other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in all of Roots music. Check out some of these banjo classes that they offer. Beginning Banjo with Bill Evans, Bluegrass Banjo with Bill Evans, Clawhammer Banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward Style Banjo with Bruce Molsky, The Banjo According to Danny Barnes, and Contemporary Bluegrass Banjo with Wes Corbett. All of these courses are going to include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tablature, play-along tracks, and plenty of songs to play along with. Now, the best part is that just for being a Picky Fingers listener, you are going to get your first month free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS, all one word, all lowercase, at checkout. Once again, pegheadnation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS to get your first month free. 
And folks, another sponsor of the show and one of my favorite places on earth is Elderly Instruments up in Lansing, Michigan. Now, I worked there for about 10 years and it's still where I go for all my banjo, guitar, and any other string instrument needs. So that should really tell you something. Elderly has been family owned since 1972 and has grown to become the world's most trusted source for new used and vintage fretted instruments. So whether you are looking for your first beginner instrument or that hard to find vintage collectible, Elderly is going to have that and they are also going to back it up with the best customer service in the business. So head over to elderly.com to see their full inventory online. They ship worldwide, by the way. Or give them a call at 517-372-7880. All right, so the the next thing we're going to discuss here is Butch has drawn a diagram that I'm going to try my best to explain for this audio-only medium that we have. And this is going to be a part of your explanation and, and your perspectives about bluegrass rhythm um timing, timing bluegrass that, timing no not bluegrass timing just timing. just timing and to me the way the way i would probably try to explain this is it looks like looking at a ruler where each beat maybe is on the one inch two inch three inch four inch but then you have subdivisions which are the quarter inches of a ruler and so you know, the bass notes come on every inch marker on a typical, for a, for a bluegrass style playing. So you'd have maybe your G and then the D note on the two inch, back to G and back to D for your one five to one to five rhythm style. Um, and the way you described it to me was even the guitar strum can be de- deconstructed as far as the pick attack happening on the right on the inch right downbeat and then the chord rings out from say the first quarter inch on through right up to that second itch marker where yeah. it cuts off we'll be talking about that when i talk about the role of the bass in this okay because it's also important as to where you come as important as where you come on a note it's equally as important as to where you come off of it if you're going to lend that sound that you're making on a bass to the rhythm of the music. Yeah. Okay? So if you give me that back, we're going to do another little thing with it, and we're going to talk about the way most musicians play. The majority of musicians that I've ever played with, unfortunately, play, I mean, unless you're in a concert situation or, or whatever, if you're out here just around and about, when these musicians play, the most dominant thing that happens to them in a lot of cases is the beat hits and they hit. 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 Just just ever so slightly late. Right. And it occurs because of one of two reasons, for the most part, I've found out. Number one is they simply aren't well enough practiced or rehearsed in their music to play on top of where they're supposed to be. And the other reason is because they're listening to somebody play. When you start listening to somebody play, you're always going to be reacting to them. Yeah. If you ever play in a band where you have extended solos and you've got one person over here on the right side of the stage 
listening for the guy over on the left side of the stage who's doing a solo to play a certain eight measures and repeat it twice so it's time for the next guy to come in. Uh-huh. Whoever's doing that listening is usually just a shade behind what's going on. Sure. Because they're reacting. They're responding to a music as they're listening to it. Yeah. All right. Then what, you got other that's pl- because of the speed of sound and then your brain processing time as you listen to it and respond. That takes right. a few milliseconds. Yeah. All right. Well, you got another player out here. He's like a Alan Shelton, J.D. Crow, Jimmy Dwayne Brock, Kenny Baker. And now Butch is drawing a, an attack mark um, just on the other side. So rather than being no, just... It's right on it. Right on top. Yeah. Then And, and they are... I mean, Alan Shelton and Jimmy D. Brock were a machine. When I got to sit in and help out a little bit on some of the behind-the-board work for Alan Shelton, Shelton special record that he did for Rounder. Yeah. I had a little clock there on the board and a metronome. And Jim and Alan would do the first run through of the tune, and they would run it through in its entirety. Where Alan was going to do backup, he'd be doing backup licks, and where he's going to do the leads, and they'd run it into if that tune went for, it, it's at 130 beats a minute, mm-hmm. moderate pace there, last two minutes and 24 seconds. It was that way every time. It never varied more than two seconds. It never came in at less than 222 or more than 226 uh-huh. from that time. I mean, they were they were right with the clicks that's on incredible. the metronome. I could set a metronome to those two playing. That's yeah. right on the money there. I mean, that's wow. that's what you're looking for. And then there are these other cats that play here, just a shade there in front of it, about five to ten milliseconds in most cases. You can find that to be the case in most Earl Scruggs' stuff. You can find it to be in a case with a lot of dynamic people out there. Richard Green, he would bite the front edge off of a beat. I mean, just explosive out there. Not necessarily in the bluegrass stuff he did, but listen to his work with C-Train. <laughs> you know, it was oh, wow. some of the most fabulous stuff you ever heard in your life. So you can see there how I've drawn that. Yes. Now, if I ask you, I'm going to draw a line here from there to there and from there to there. And from there to there, you can explain to your listeners what that's about. He's drawing a line from, say, somebody who is ahead of the beat, where their attack is, to the next attack. It's the same distance as somebody who's on top of the beat to their next attack, or even behind the beat. That's that's what I'm trying to propose. See, all three of these people are playing in time, Mm -hmm. in the same time space, but they're just a shade out of sync with each other, where they are. And this occurs all in that ensemble sound. You know, if I got that bass man and he's making this note right here real strong, right on top of the beat, if he's going to cut that thing off, if he's not going to let it that note dwell all the way till he makes that next note, he either has to cut it off right on here or right here <laughs> or right here. <coughs> when he's dampening it, if he lets it, ring through this and cuts it off in the middle of this, the music will have a tendency to drag a little bit. It'll pull it itself. 
if he cuts it off a little bit early right there, the music will try to rush. It's as important as to where he's coming off that note as to where he's coming on it. So is this something that you view that there's a right or wrong way to do it, or no, it's just different effects it's, it's that you achieve? Different. I mean, it's just the different ways that people play to play different, you know, and, and yeah. what to look for in it as to what can pull your music, what can take your music out of its natural state. Mm-hmm. And, and do things to it that makes it less than a pure version of what it is. Interesting. Because the music's all, you know, like I said, I've, I've talked to you about how great I think banjo players are these days, some of the guys that I've heard. But there's, there's a whole lot of eyewash out there today mm-hmm. as well. And generally that thing of running the scales or doing one of them ooh-la-la breaks, those are expressions of ego. That's a, that's a, the guy standing out there saying, look what I am. Sure. Monroe used to call those people the people that can't hold on to the melody of their fiddle tunes that they're playing, but they got to put something in there that just blows you away with what lick that they played. Monroe looked at somebody like that and said, well, he just thinks he's a little bit too big for his music. You know, because we're trying to go. That's what it dawned on me after a while when I finally figured out it didn't matter no more. After I got that place where, as I said, I was unconsciously competent in making these sounds come out to a banjo, then I was able to go into the banjo and start really trying to make some of the sounds come out. And I'm fortunate enough to get involved with engineers like Kurt Story out of Nashville, Tennessee, one of the most brilliant recording engineers and and talented musical people I ever ran into in my life. And he helped me be able to get recorded sounds out of my banjo that just sort of give you an inkling of the true scope of the range of sound that it has in it. I mean, I've been playing the thing for a half a century now. I think I've been playing it 46 years at this point, something like that. Yeah. You know, and 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 my banjo was made in 1930. So in 2030, it'll be 100 years old. I will have owned it ever since 1977 at that stage of the game. So I will be 81 years old and it'll be a hundred years and I will have owned it for, I think it's like 53, 53 years at that point. Yeah. Incredible. That's over half of its life. I've had it and there's never been any true structural damage to it. I skinned it up a little bit with belt buckles and coats and the bluegrass boys had a stage backdrop fall on me in Vancouver, B.C. that got part of the top of the headstock here, skinned it up a little bit, but it's still there. There's no yeah. structural damage, and I've even got the original frets that came out of it. Yeah. You know, all the working parts that have ever been. I've got the original tuners, the original bridge that's an inlaid bridge. Wow. They inlaid the ebony. The, the, um, the maple came up on the sides right there. And the ebony was inlaid from about right here to about right there. Oh, cool. Yeah, okay. I think I've seen those. Yeah. And, I mean, it's, I've got all the original the original Rogers five-star head that came on it. You know, I played it for up until the first Chatham, Alabama festival after I got it. Uh-huh. It was down there on a Friday night, and it was real uh, damp and muggy and warm out that night. Here I am playing along, and I hear strings rattling, and I look down, and my, <laughs> my bridge is sunk, you know, an eighth of an inch at yeah. that point into the Pretty head. Pretty soggy, yeah. things, things are starting to rattle real bad. 
But anyhow, this is this is some of the stuff I know about timing. And like I said, that heartbeat life of the music occurs in the realm of the backbeat. That's where the actual pulsation of music will come to you from. Just that beat, that beat's just a click. That's just telling you, if you know if it says 120 beats a minute, that's supposed to be two beats every second, period. Right. I mean, that mathematically works out to yeah. be what it is. But if you're talking about the heartbeat life of that music, the pulsation of that music, it was I, I never appreciated Tony Rice's guitar playing nearly as much as I probably should have because he was so wonderful with J.D. Crow and everything, just an integral part of the the fabulous realm of that band through the 70s and uh, and everything there. But when I went out to make my last record, I am so tired of people slamming me on the downbeat when I'm playing, like if I'm trying to do one, ba-da-bom-bom-bom, kicks into it, trying to add a little bit of drive to me, but that guy's slamming me on that rhythm guitar on the downbeat. Yeah. It's gone. Yeah, that's a much more modern and, type of approach. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't like it because right. it has it doesn't have a pulsation to it. But to get back to the point that I was trying to make, uh, I had this keyboard come in, player come in. His name was Jimmy Wallace. He works with the Joe Walsh Band. And he came in to do the last record, and I told him I wanted him to maintain you know, uh, with the drummer, I told him I just want a continuity of rhythm. I said, I want dance music out there, but more like dance music that would played on the Lawrence Welk show rather than to a bunch of hippies in a mud hole out in front of a bluegrass festival stage, yeah. you know. And I want a continuity of rhythm that will enable that to happen. And I told the keyboard player, I want you to play like Dwayne Al or Greg Allman played before Dwayne died. And that was you play the key changes underneath because I ain't got no other string band only other stringed instrument I got's a bass on this thing. Yeah. So you're going to tell them where the keys are changing and everything. Reinforce the rhythm a little bit. Do you some little fills at the end of lines and everything, but that's it. Just performance. And I finally realized that's what Tony Rice did on the guitar. Oh, wow. There wasn't a pulsation to him. He just felt, you know, it's like I used to say about Jim McReynolds and Lester Flatt. The only time you heard them plays when they broke a string. <laughs> and then one side of the stage just fell off. Yeah. It was just like his total vacuum happened. Well, that's the way Tony did. He laid that whole sound in underneath that and did so in a very wonderful way. And I I gained an appreciation to him that I had been very close-minded to because I was looking for a pure pulsation of stuff on the backbeat. And I realized, hell, you got that out of a mandolin. If you find somebody can, you know, do a decent rhythm on the mandolin, come out with that good heavy sound of a chord being played while that while they're playing their rhythm you you caught my ear with something you said about people showing off and bill monroe's comments about people who do that um i'd like to hear what your approach was to taking say a, a monroe song or or another melody if such as a, a an instrumental piece how did you approach improvising on that in a way I that didn't. you didn't no what do you mean i tried to play the melody but you still i mean no Hmm. There's no place for that. The, the damn piece of music, I mean, the piece of music in most cases is hard enough just playing that. Okay. Just accomplishing that tune. I mean, do you hear any of that stuff I did like Old Ebenezer, Old Dangerfield, Jerusalem Ridge, or something like that? Sure. Yeah. Well, where in the world would I improvise in something like that? The tune's complete the way it is. What could I add to that? Hmm. I mean, so I guess maybe another. You know, if I want to do something like that to a tune, I'll write my own tune. I don't need to go into somebody else's piece of music and disrespect what they did. 
you know, that I'll as, write my own piece of music before I'll do that. Do you view that as disrespectful to somebody who writes music to, to improvise? It's, of course I do. Hmm. You know, if you want to improvise, because that improvisation is showing your ego in most cases. I mean, granted, there are kids like, I mean, young people out there like Chris Thiele and people like that who are just masters at what they do at mandolin playing. And I think it's ridiculous for me to him even being turned around and trying to call himself being anything bluegrass. He is so far beyond that. It, it To me, it's foolish to do that. Okay. But anyhow, that's my opinion on it. <laughs> But, uh, well, I know I just think I don't care who it is. If I'm going to play somebody else's material, I'm going to do the best I can to show you how that person presented it when they first did it. You know, it's just like going back and listening to the, uh, the 50s instrumentals that Monroe did. You know, I can hear this all day. Wheelhouse, isn't it? Ain't that yeah. what? Yeah, I can do that all day long. Boy, it really sounds like a wheelhouse, don't it? Uh-huh. Compared to. That sounds like an eight wheel driver out there clanking to me. Mm-hmm. Not. <laughs> there i went do 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 and that begins the first note at the g run when the g hits his high g note there that's the beginning that's again, the first yeah. note yeah of the next thing coming in that third part i played to it there hubert davis played that on the original recording it was there okay ha- having this um really faithful interpretation of the melody is that something that Bill told you he wanted you to do, or was that just an he never instinct told me that you anything, had? He never told me anything about anything. Hmm. I don't know of one time of him. He might have had a little suggestion here or there. The only time he ever said anything about my banjo playing that I remember <laughs> is we walked out on the Grand Ole Opry to do a gospel song. We were going to do something like Crying Holy or something like that because I was in B-flat. B we got up to center mic, and about when he was opening his mouth, somebody hollered up for footprints in the snow, which is an E. Kenny takes off on it. <laughs> I, I got a capo on the third fret, which don't lend nothing in there to an E. No. Whatsoever. No. And when it come time for my break, it was just a train wreck. Uh-huh. I mean, I was trying to play out of the position with the capo, it, it, yeah. having that. You're playing in C-sharp, basically. And yeah. <laughs> never said a thing to me. So the next Saturday night, we're in Lincoln Center, New York, full house out there. 
for whatever the hell's going on, and we're behind the curtain on the right-hand side of the stage being introduced. Mm. And he looks around at me and he said, uh, I think you're going to have to work on that footprints in the snow a little bit. That wasn't very good what you did last night. <laughs> and I said, here you go. I got performance anxiety. We're playing it. And you doing this 30 seconds before we're going to be walking out there. <laughs> you know. But anyhow, that's the only thing I can ever remember of him yeah. actually saying something that, you know, about what I did. Most of the time, he just let me go with whatever I had. And I, I told him. We had gotten in a big fight about something. He had misinterpreted something I said and started, thought I'd used some profanity that he didn't approve of. And he threw a big fit over it. And I, I told him, when he, he threw that big fit, and I explained to him that I didn't say what he had thought that I said, and I repeated what I did say. And, you know, he had done gotten mad at that point, so he was just going to keep on to it. And I can say it's just like this. I said, if you can find anybody that can do the job for you that I'm doing for the money you're paying for me. You jump right on out there and hire them. Give me my notice and I'll be gone. Mm -hmm. And I got that on, on the table early with that stuff. And it, it, I think it could have been a lot worse than what it was. I mean, he did not approve of the way I was living my life back in those years or anything, but I think he respected me as a musician. And when I made my peace with him, in order to do, they came to me after I'd done that once again from a top thing for Carrie Hay, and he started the Hay Holler record label off the proceeds of that first thing that we got on TV out there, and they came after me to do a gospel one, and I refused to do it until I'd made my peace with him because I just didn't, I mean, I didn't feel right. I had changed a lot inside of myself. I'd cleaned up my life by that point, and uh, I wasn't going to make some kind of musical statement out there. I don't care for religious music all that much anyhow i think there are many streams to the ocean and you can't really look at one of them as exclusive without stepping on the toes of a bunch of stuff and all the others so mm. i just sort of don't do that i like i said there are many streams to the ocean to me the uh, goal is to find the deep waters of spirituality and let all the pettiness of religion go its own way but that's my point there but, I, I i never met Bill Monroe myself, I wasn't even listening to this kind of music before he passed away, but um, he's he's relatively famous, or there's a lot of stories about him being famously closed-minded about his preferences in music. You know, the phrase, no part of nothing, gets tossed around a lot. Oh, yeah. Um, it was, is that pretty true about his views of how bluegrass and related music should be played? That was his view of anything that proved itself to be ignorance to him hmm. so if it, he said something meant you know a lot of people like laugh about that stage or that that saying but to him it meant if he issued that statement about something whatever that something was he issued that statement about was not going to occupy one more second of his life he was not even going to think about it again if he said something was no part of nothing at least for a period of time, I won't mention the guy's name, but he and a guy, one of his ex-members, had been laughing around backstage at Bean Blossom. And this guy goes out to do his show. He had a shortened show because he just, you know, was sort of a novelty, not really a novelty, but he didn't have the full band and all that stuff. And he goes out and he does a, a couple of songs that are just complete lunacy. And Monroe stands back there, well, what does that silly fool think he's doing out there? You know, that ain't no part of nothing. 
And, you know, they had been just back there slapping each other on the shoulders, laughing about the old times and everything else, and that guy walked out on that stage. Monroe stand back there in the middle of that dressing room when he came off the stage back. Monroe didn't even acknowledge that he walked through the door. Wow. He would no longer speak to him that day. It's just, if that thing was no part of nothing, it was no part of nothing. It's kind of like the death penalty in his eyes. That you're, well, it's, it's, it's done. the complete, you're done. Yeah. There ain't no use to even waste any more of my life <laughs> thinking well, about this. And I guess why I bring that up is because you already mentioned how you had a, a few albums that incorporated some, some relatively out there kind of stuff, especially on the fragments of My Imagination. And I'm wondering if you ever heard from Bill about what he thought about that kind of music. Oh, that... I'm sure he never listened to it. Okay. You know, for the most part, he didn't keep music around him. The only thing I know of for sure, Julia told me that he kept a copy of Grounded, Centered, Focused in his coat pocket. And if he got in a car that had a CD player in it, that thing went in the CD player and he run it over to, to the where, where we were doing the, the parts on it with him on it. And right. the one that he really liked was Dudley Connell singing uh, um, Kentucky Waltz. And I think the main thing he liked about that was Randy Howard's fiddle break on it. Wow. I, I did a note-for-note -note version of Randy Howard, a fiddle break on it. I, it was kind of neat. Let's see if I can play that for you. This is on... Uh, Grounded Centered Focus? I, I, yeah, I, I've absolutely heard this. At. That's the fiddle part that you were just well, playing. Well, that's we played it. Uh, we played it in unison, and he went back and added a harmony to it. Oh wow! And everything. Gosh, what a fiddle player that guy was! Mm -hmm. I, I, it broke my heart so much. I went down there to see him and Kathy not long after that, and they just developed his, uh, or just uh, diagnosed his renal cancer and everything. And he was telling me it's only a temporary setback. Wow, what a talent! He did a thing on Jamboree or Jubilee or something like that on the thing. It's one of the darndest fiddle breaks I ever heard in my life. to mix the thing I hadn't paid any attention when you know stuff was going on I get all involved in first one thing then the other while yeah, yeah. recording somebody gets a track they're happy with us all right go home you know if, you, if you're happy with I'll it. have to go back and listen to that too 
I have some I have some notes that I want to refer to because I sometimes I ask people to submit uh, questions for me. I'll ask you a, a classic question from the old Masters of the Five String Banjo book. What what is the recording of yours that you think you're most proud of or most represents your playing style? The grounded, centered, focused, probably, but the one that I'm most proud of is 40 Years Late, that tune in C minor. I just think I never understood why 40 Years Late or Rural Retreat, one of those two banjo tunes, really didn't catch on out there and be, a, you know, one of them jam session favorites that people do. So I, I, so I, I just don't understand that at all. But I, like I said, I tried for... 10 or 15 years to develop some kind of marketable celebrity. But um, when it hadn't been done at the end of that time, it was just my life had gotten such that I needed to change my way of going for a while. Hell, I quit playing for 10 years. Hmm. And that's tough to do, you know, when you you quit when you're in your early to mid-30s and, you know, 10 years later somebody comes by and asks you to make a set of records to go on TV and you're just going to produce them, and all of a sudden the banjo player you hire to get the job done winds up the job's going to take him to Europe all summer. So you have to learn how to play the banjo again. So down comes my little metronome, and I started playing the banjo again. And Incredible. Who who is it that you're referring to there? What's that? You you said you got hired for something, and the banjo player you wanted to... I mean, Carrie Hay Hmm. came over to my office. I was doing, uh, (laughs) writing... uh, programs to to do a bidding on asbestos abatement programs, you know, and he came into my office and he wanted to do a, a series of records that got put on TV, like the old boxcar Willie stuff and everything. And I did it. I made the package for him. Uh, I was just supposed to be in the, you know, what they call a producer in the studio. Yeah. I wasn't really supposed to play on it. Sammy Sheeler was. Uh-huh. And he wound up with taking a job with a band that worked USO tours all over Europe that summer and wound up taking off. And I couldn't find anybody else in this area to play, you know, those old standards like I did. Uh-huh. So I went in and played that. And that wasn't the big deal. You know, I made that, and he did quite well with it. He started his own record label and everything, but they came back to me about a year later and said they wanted a gospel version of it. And I didn't feel real good about doing that, most especially because of the way that I had quit Monroe's outfit back in the 80s. I really showed my self when I did that. That was probably the awfulest thing that I did in my life, and I told him I wouldn't do it. I went down to... uh, um, Ralph Stanley's festival down here, the festival, the Stanley Festival. Ralph was still going in, so was Bill. And Blake Williams held my hand all day that day, you know, uh-huh. out at the record table trying to catch a time when Monroe would be alone. And they had done their show that they were the last show in the afternoon programs and the whole audience and everybody was going over to Carter's grave to have a little seance that they had over there. And Blake motioned me up when he left out of the back of the stage area up there. Bill was the last one left in the stage area. So I went in there and walked up the steps and blocked the door on him so he couldn't get out. And he got up to me and he lifted his head. He was all bent over. He was, you know, 10 years older at that point than I'd been, or about 12 actually at that point. And uh, he said, well, what do you want? And I said, well, Mr. Bill, when I left your band, I think it was about the... uh, awfulest episode of my life where I just showed my ignorance 
out on the table. And I said, I've come here today to apologize to you and ask for your forgiveness. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, well, it's about time. <laughs> and I took him over and put him in my car and took him up to the Carter thing. Huh. And for the next uh, five or six years after that, I would go when we would do our business planning for the real estate agency. I'd go down there and check into a motel right outside of Goodlettsville. And every morning I'd call him up and ask him if he had a pot of coffee on. If he said he did, that meant he could was loose for a little bit, you know. So I'd go over and get him a dozen donuts and go out to his house and we'd drink coffee and uh, he'd eat donuts and sit there and play. Sometimes we'd play the mandolin and the banjo, you know. Sometimes he'd just get to mandolin out and he'd go over and he'd set that tremolo and there was that wrist perfect. I mean, it was all wrist on him. He didn't move his arm when he was playing. He had a classical mandolin technique. I think he got it from Hubert Stringfield, who had worked for his father. He was a classical mandolin player there in the Rosine area that worked uh, either in the pony mines or in one of the lumber mills that Bill's dad had. I've read your book, but maybe I'm forgetting. What are the circumstances that you're referring to for how you, how you quit? Uh -huh. Oh, I cussed him out like a red-headed stepchild out in the, trying to get him to fire me, telling him that, that, you know, you know, I want you to fire me because I promised my dad I'd never quit. You're going to fire me now. Because we hadn't been paid for about two or three TV shows and I'd got myself, I'd signed my dad into the hospital a couple of times and wound up having part of the bills for his. And one of them, I think, was like $17,000 sent back, you know, for something like that. And here I am working for Monroe 260 days on the year, one year, 260 days on the road for $8,235. So things were getting real sketchy financially back in those days for me. And then to not even get paid that. Right, um, correct, and and it was all a you know I said in my book, and I it was a, a a mistake by the office, but they had were always used to him paying us when we did a job, and anytime checks came in, they just sent them straight to the bank. But these particular ones, they didn't realize that he hadn't paid us for those TV shows, and um, gotcha. Turns out to be two or three thousand dollars, but it was enough. It could have really helped me at that point. Yeah, you needed it back, every penny you could get. So, so I just asked you about the recording that you're most proud of. I'm wondering if there's anything in your playing that either ever bothered you or that you always wished that you could have been a little better at than, than you ended up being. No, it's all, it's all what it was for the time that it was. I mean, I, I always wanted things to be better. I mean, that's something that I've done every time, but I've learned to, I'm learning how to appreciate myself a little bit in my old age, you know? Yeah. I don't give myself permission to be happy inside no more. I demand it out of myself. You know, I, I just went through some group that they had up at the Veterans Administration, uh, you know, about the, that they're doing things for older folks and yeah. and everything, and they're talking about old people wanting to set goals. What the hell do I want to set any goals for? I've already done everything I wanted to do in triplicate. The only goal I got right now is to keep breathing and keep being able to play my banjo. You know, I'm completely content with that. It don't matter. I don't have the resources to do what a lot of people do, but so what? Mm. I can play an instrument. Interesting. Yeah. You asked me a while ago. I started to do this for you. I don't know whether it'd be appropriate now, and you're doing. Thank you. 
get the gist of it. Yeah, no, I now, love where that is it, Where's any spot in there for improvising? Well, it's not on. It's not on your version. That's for sure. Well, that's his version. That's yeah. what he played on the mandolin. Well, that leads me to my next question. This actually comes from the great uh, Mike Bubb, who I'm sure you probably oh, right. know. Bubby is a great man. And and this lead, yeah, perfect segue. He says. To him, Butch Robbins is the greatest interpreter of Bill Monroe's music on the five-string banjo. So that's his compliment to you, but I think a lot of people share that. Uh, his ability to find the nuanced sounds, the feel, and the melody notes are often elusive to other players and are carefully curated and crafted in your solos. And he would love to hear you talk about how you break down a tune, maybe such as that, and build a solo from that basic melody. Well, first I try to isolate the melody in something I can do just playing the single string notes of it. It's like what I said a while ago about, you know, the playing style that I have is more reminiscent of Fred Van Epps than it is Earl Scruggs. Mm -hmm. Because that was the thing that Fred, he just did so with the more sophisticated music and everything than what I do where I went after Monroe's music directly. And the deal about Monroe's music is... The only thing that remained constantly true with Monroe was his rhythm. Jack Henshawood used to be the head of a thing up here called the Crooked Road. And he got me to come down and, and uh, to a studio and record Southern Flavor with him, I think it was. It's the one that Monroe run, won the Grammy off of. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't even think I'd ever played Southern Flavor before. Right. And Joanne reminded me that uh, I'd, I'd recorded it with Michael Fagan. <laughs> and uh, I had played a break. She played me what I'd played on there, and I'd played a little break. It was sort of okay, but it wasn't anything to write home about. And uh, so I looked out on YouTube, and I found out Bill Monroe coming out on a guest on some program that Marty Stewart was hosting. I don't know what it was. It looked like around the Opry House. But they had Marty was over here at the center mic, and I'm trying to point that out to you. And Bill comes in from behind the curtain over here, and his band's all out, and they're all playing wheel offs. And um, Bill gets out to Marty, and they they end up wheel offs, and they start talking. And and uh, Bill asks Marty, "Oh, well, can I, they, Marty, how you doing?" And I blah blah blah. And Bill says, "Well, can I play one for the neighbors?" Marty said, well, that's what we brought you out here for, you know. So Bill turns around. He said, this is Southern Flavor. And he starts playing it. And the way that tune plays, he plays the first part twice, and then he plays the second part, and then he hands it off to the next guy. Yeah. So, so here he goes. would yeah, be the form. A-A-B. A-A-B. Fiddle players. A-A-B again. Banjo player. A-A-B again. Marty Stewart. A-A-B again. Bill takes it and plays it out. Okay. Eight times he's played that A part and never played it twice the same way. So I took those parts and I, <laughs> I chopped them apart and everything and used all the what I thought were the hippest ways he phrased each oh, thing so when it was coming in to your do it. Compilation of so ways I, I, it was just a compilation of what he did, and everybody's going ooh and ah, you know, at the break that's out there. Well, it's Monroe's music, you know. Yeah, that's why you couldn't. The thing about going after him musically was you had to fake being an absolute virtuoso <laughs> to do that, because he was an absolute virtuoso, but he didn't know what he was doing. 
You know, I, I've, I've said on a number of occasions, I think I met two consummate geniuses the whole time I was in that realm of the bluegrassers out there. And that was Bill Monroe and Bill Keith. And they, their genius was as different as daylight and dark. Hmm. With Keith, everything had a number to it, a system, a formula. Whether it was his cycle of fifths or whatever it is, everything reduced itself to a number or a pattern or a formula. Yeah, it's very cerebral. Yeah. With Monroe, it was just the unfolding of organized ensemble sound. Yeah. What key you playing that one in, Mr. Bill? That one right there. <laughs> uh, what's the first three notes of the, the melody on that? Those right there. He ain't going to tell you what they right. are because he don't know what they are. But he just knew what that experience flow of music. And, I mean, that's the same guy that... Like I said, Blue Moon of Kentucky, 16th most recorded thing of all time. That came along within the first 10 years of his career. You know, that place where Billy Strings is right now. Came along within that first 10 years. Look at the body of work after that. You know, you look at all those 50s tunes and the complexion of them. You got all these tunes. I tried to play you Wheelhouse out there a while ago. But in those days, the banjo parts in there were completely unique. Because they were like structures. How did Rudy Lyles breaking Rawhide emulate Monroe at all? The mandolin or the fiddle? Yeah, not much. He was doing none. All, yeah. None. How did Hubert Davis's breaking wheelhouse? I don't know, but I'm assuming none. Well, I just I just played it for oh. you there a while ago. Okay. There ain't nobody else playing that. They're going. Backing up on that thing. See, each instrument had its own interpretation of those forms that he was doing back in the 50s. When Bill Keith came into the music, the scope of the music went like this. Because all of a sudden, the banjo's playing what the fiddle's playing, what the mandolin's playing. Yeah, and it actually reduced the scope of that music for that style of banjo player. If the melodic banjo playing hadn't come along, there would have been nothing for it out there. Because those tunes, like I played for you there, that old Ebenezer or old Dangerfield, some of those things, yeah. My Last Days on Earth, Jerusalem Ridge, uh, they ain't a whole lot in those tunes for a banjo. Yeah, they're, they're challenging. They're, they just, well, it, it wouldn't work. Yeah, yeah. Another question that was submitted. So you've been fairly open, including in parts of this interview about some substance and me mental health issues that you've had. Yes, sir. And you've, uh, seems like you've overcome for the most part, a lot of those. And I'd love to hear you talk about how maybe that has affected your playing, maybe coming out on the other side of those things. Well, I think, um, you know, give me a few days to practice right now and everything. And I, with the practice room routine I got where it used to take, five to seven days now, or seven to 10 days now, it takes 10 to 14 days to get the job done. It's just a routine that I developed back in the 70s for myself. But I actually like my playing today better than I've ever experienced it before. I mean, I don't have the quick reflexes anymore. It's obvious time has taken its thing on it. When you see fingers that have been broken. I mean, I crushed all of these with the jack of a, putting the shackles back under a 35 Ford three-window coupe 
That's why they're thinner than anything else oh, no. there. They, and they wanted to take them off at the, at the emergency room where I went, and I wouldn't let them. I just said, I'm going to have to do with it because I couldn't, you know. When that's was what, that? Uh, somewhere around 90, 91, okay. somewhere along in there. Wow, I'd never heard about that. That's incredible. I've got I've got the X rays at home. I'm gonna have them published sometime. And Joanne's got everything else. I, I'm surprised I haven't given those to her. But um, uh, anyhow, I, I, the whole journey, the clinical treatment to actually find out what was going on with me, because uh, you know the first time I ever checked myself into a, a, a nut hut or anything, I had laid out the abuse the nature of the abuse that I was going through right then. And I thought the first thing they'd do is send me to a spoon room to dry out. You know, that's what they normally did. And I found out really that, you know, I, I'm telling this guy about all this stuff I'm doing and everything. And <laughs> told him, well, if y'all got a place for me, I'm supposed to go to Roanoke and play with these old boys Wednesday night up there. But if you got a place for me after that, I'd like to come over and see if I can find out what's going on. And the doctor looked at me, he said, Mr. Robbins, he said, if you're serious about getting some help for yourself, there's a gown right over there behind that door behind you. Huh. You'll put that on right now. Right now. Right. And come in here. And I did. And like I said, they didn't put me in any of the withdrawal things. There's a spoon room, and the guy just looked at me. I never had any withdrawal symptoms. The guy just looked at me and said, I don't believe drugs are your problem. I said, he said, I believe you have some deep-seated emotional issues and and. You know, that's what we need to look at and try to discover what's at the basis of all of this. Mm. And I started working on it then, and I've kept it up through time and everything. And <laughs> I have just begun to appreciate life here, you know, right in the final stages of it. And I'm absolutely loving it. Yeah. I could have made it through this whole journey. And it all been depression, but I found a place, you know, and it, it has to do with loving my heart for my fellow man. And for this this three dimensional existence I have right now, yeah, because it's been good. I mean, I've been able to, <laughs> I've been able to affect people around the world with just silly little notes that I play. I, you know, I, I played that ten rural retreat for you a while ago. Yeah, and I had one person. It was on the Fragments album. I had one person hold that record up to me one time. And said it's the biggest piece of garbage he'd ever heard in his life. Few years later, I'm doing a workshop over in Japan. Go out in and up there, and you know they're plying me with beer and sushi, some of the wonderful food they have over there, and everything. Sitting back there all day and or all morning with that. It's in this farmhouse out in the mountains, about 50 miles north of Osaka over there. And they were just feeding me all this stuff. It's so wonderful, and they had two guys in there who were going to be my translators, uh -huh. and it was so funny. <laughs> the way that I talk and everything. <laughs> I kept them confused all day. They weren't day. quite ready for you? <laughs> I don't think they were ready for what I had. But That's anyhow, great. I walked through the doors into the big old open room and, and where they rolled the walls back, you know, and everything, and and uh, 40 people got on their feet and played one of the, the tunes that was on that record that that guy said was the biggest piece of garbage he had ever heard. Yeah. And it's wow. like I was saying, you know, this whole thing of the thing being a social skill. I used to hand my banjo. I'd, I'd get done with my banjo after a show, and I'd just hand it out to the audience. Anybody wants to play this thing, do it. Because I came to believe inside myself that anybody that ever touched my banjo left a little piece of themselves in there hmm. for me. And that just enhanced what it 
it would be able to do for me. I remember Yoshihiro Arita, a real wonderful friend of mine. Um, <laughs> he was over, he came out to the Rocky Top over there in Tokyo when I played it one time. Yeah. It's a little bar, and uh, he was sort of translating for me. And there was this little gal, I keep seeing this little gal, she would look at me, you know, and want to come over, and she was real timid. And uh, so I got through with my set that night, and Hero was sitting there with me. We were drinking a beer or something. And uh, I just motioned for her. She was looking at me, and I motioned for her to come over like that. I didn't get up and go over to her. You know, she came walking over to the table. And Hero asked her, you know, what was going on, and she wanted to talk to me. Okay. So I said, okay, that's good. You be the translator. And he started translating. Well, she's sitting there just shaking and trembling all over. And... Uh, I said, ask her why she's uh, so seems to be so nervous. And uh, he came back at me that she was just nervous to talk to me. And I said, lady, you got no reason to be nervous here. I just handed my banjo out to 50 drunken Japanese. <laughs> I've got to be nervous in this situation, you know. But I loved it. They all treated this instrument with such respect over there. And it's like I used to say, if this isn't the most played, the most people haven't played this banjo of any of them, I wouldn't know what would. Uh, I don't think Earl ever put – a lot of people have played on that Granada his at one time and been very, you know, wonderfully blessed to have touched it and played on it and everything. But this one's been in a whole lot of people's hands. Yeah, and well, it was that way for years. That's incredible. I wish you could somehow know the number, and I and you've showed me some of the inscriptions that are inside the resonator, <laughs> and it's quite an all star collection there. So let's talk. Let's. That's a great segue. Let's talk more about this instrument of yours. Um, you you gave me a little sample of how you came to obtain it, and right. as as I understand, that was not only a big deal for you personally, but it was a pretty big deal, like in the banjo community regarding well, it was the, the most the, at that point i think there may have been an old florentine or an old bell of Ochi, one of those all real americans fancy ones, or yeah. something like that one of the real fancy ones that may have sold for more but uh i never will forget it uh i bought this one and brought it in and sonny osborne said he'd never had one because it didn't have that inlay down here you know somewhere that the threes and everything that he had down there Okay. And then two months later, he goes over and camps out at a Red Roof Inn over right below Tom McKinney's house and bugged the hell out of him for two weeks till Tom finally sold him that Granada. But uh, that was 9584. It was the batch right after this. It's 9583 1 here. And. Uh, <laughs> And Sonny had that, and I said, when he come in there with it, I said, Sonny, I thought you'd never have one with that hearts and flowers design. You said that it didn't have a He said, I love the sound so much, it don't matter if I can't find <laughs> out where I'm at, you know. But anyhow, um, yeah, I, uh, where, where was I at? What am I talking about here? We were talking about uh, how, how you purchasing it was kind of a big deal because it was one of the oh, top yeah. selling At that point, uh, that was the most that had been paid, and then Sonny wound up paying five for the Granada. And what did you pay for that one? I paid six for this. Okay. And it got, it was well known around, you know, I, right. I didn't hold it back. You know, Hell, I've paid all this money and ain't my kind of <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> better get some attention yeah, for yeah, it. Yeah, better get some attention. So anyhow, <laughs> the, uh, I was down at George Gruen's. Mike Poteet was working behind the counter there, and George was up at the end of that long glass counter down on Broadway at that point, and uh, the corner down there. He was up at the other end of that, and some guy that was a collector from out, I think it was Hendersonville or Gallatin, somewhere out there in East Nashville, Northeast, 
out there bitching and said, ever since Butch Robbins and Sonny Osborne bought them things, it's got to where a collector can't afford to have them no more. And I just walked back to him and I said, sir, I said, my name is Butch Robbins. And that banjo that I had to pay $6,000 for, if I'd have bought it 10 years ago at Union Grove, North Carolina, I could have got it for less than a grand probably. But it's been collectors and folks like you who have driven the price up to where a decent working musician can't afford a decent instrument. I said, so you just stick your little whatever you got in your back pocket there, and you think about what it means to me to have to pay that much for an instrument, you know, to be able to get something that plays well. But very I got well, it. And, very well put. But I, I heard all that nonsense I wanted to hear. Now, for for folks who are unaware of what your instrument is why don't you take us through like the the year and the model and and tell, tell 19, us what it is it's a 1930 rb4 that's an original five string uh joe span george gruen gruen's the one that put the six grand appraisal on it in 1977 that's what i called up gary price i asked him if he would take that he said he would i had ken send him ken Irwin sent for me a deposit on it. And this is the founder of Rounder Records. He, he was Ken one Irwin. of the founders, yeah. Ken Erwin Bell, Nalton, and uh, Marion Layton was her name. She was the third of the three of them that started it. Uh, they came, the second re record they did, I think, was on Snuffy and Pappy, and I was there in Columbia when they came down and did that during my time in the Army. I think the first one they ever did was on George Pegram, an old banjo player contest player from down in the Carolinas. Okay. So anyhow, that's what mine is, a 1930 RB4. Uh, it's original five string. I've still got the only original piece of it that I don't have is the fifth string nut. I lost that in the carpet. I used to travel with the banjo. I'd take the neck out of it. Yeah. And put the pot in a shoulder bag, put my <laughs> underwear in the shoulder bag in the banjo case, put the pot in the shoulder bag so I could put that up under the seat in front of me and just hand carry the neck. A safer way to travel, way. yeah. And uh, had uh, torque wrenches so I knew how to how much pressure to put on the connecting rods and all this stuff when it came time to put it back together. But somehow or another, I thought that thing had been glued in, but I, it was on the banjo when I came off the airplane and got on the bus. But somewhere between San Francisco and Eureka, I think, which is where we were going at that point, I, I don't remember. Evergreen State. Uh, but anyhow, I lost it in the carpet back there. But I've got the original frets out of the banjo, still got the original case, everything. It's all original Incredible. clamshell tailpiece. Uh, they've got their spring loaded. Ken Landreth loaned me this uh, Presto that I've got on it right now because it's so much easier to change strings when you break a string, especially if you're out playing somewhere and got to get the job done pretty quick. Yeah. Um, but so you, that's that's all it is. It's a real deal. I mean, and Ronnie told, Bales is a setup guy for it. Yeah, and you've raved about the work he's he's done, and you've raved about the tone that this offers you. Why don't you tell people what you think this gives you that contributes that part of your personality of your playing. Here it is right here.
lots of sustain, but no ringy pingy. Mm-hmm. Deep tones, melody. There once was an Indian man. There once was an Indian maid. You play every syllable that the singer's singing mm-hmm. <laughs> in order to play melody like that. Yeah. And that was Snuffy Jenkins' wife's favorite banjo tune. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right wow. That's who, who also had an RB4, we should add. Yeah. 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 Now, you've, you've told me, and I'm not, I'm not sure that I agree, but you've said that if you had a Granada, you wouldn't have been able to, I don't know how you say it, be, uh, be as good or get the same sound or be able to express yourself as well. What do you mean by so. that? Or what do you hear? Well, it's that dainty top end and the throaty bottom end that a Granada's got that I really don't have the hand to play. Where this one has got that big mid-range to it, and I, you know I've got a lot of body to a note when I play it. I just there's something about the you know those maple banjos. I just can't do it. I can't get that out of my hand. Hmm. Interesting. And uh, I mean I've got a Granada, a wonderful one that uh, Charlie Darrington had made for me right before he passed on, and uh, um. You know, I couldn't get anybody to touch it for the first six or seven years that I had it, and that was my first encounter with Ronnie Bales. I went down there to play at Jack Hatfield, one of those camps that he had down there, Walfoy or something like this, but this is up in an old barn that was right below his house, <coughs> down there just outside of Sevierville. And I went up there, and, and I asked Ronnie if he would set that up because Steve Huber didn't want to touch it. Frank Neat didn't want to touch yeah. it. They'd, they'd work on my old banjo all day long, never charge me a nickel for it, but they wouldn't touch that Granada because it was new, you know. Uh-huh. And Ronnie set that Granada up, and it really sounded good. I mean, right in here in the closet right now. It didn't mean that much to me, you know. So okay. uh, I, when I take a second banjo out right now, that's it. I'm, I'm assuming that I'll have a Davis banjo at some point that I can do that with. Tim Davis, I've uh, I allowed him to sample the tone ring in this, and he's in the process of trying to clone a banjo and come out with a line of those for his company. And, oh, wow. Very and, interesting. Uh, I hope that all works out and he can uh, get that to happening. But Yeah, that'd be great. Well, I I think I'm out of all the questions that I plan to ask you. If uh, I'm happy to give you the floor if there's anything that you think Did is I important. Did I ever play 40 Years Late for you? Not Did during I? this session, no. No. Well, let me end up with that. Yeah. That's the first one. As much as you want to play, I'll I'll uh, sit here and listen. I mean, the dream record, we'll play some of that after we get off here. Have you heard that, the record, the whole dream record? You played me some over the phone. We'll go in here and listen to that on the computer in a little while. But let me play this for the friends out here. This is a tune that I wrote. And I think in the liner notes I wrote on the back of it, it... uh, the thing I wish more than anything is I could have dropped back 40 years and sat on the front porch and play with Snuffy. So that's why this is 40 years late.
Wonderful, Butch. Well, it's been an honor to speak with you and to meet with you here. Uh, before we uh, totally press stop, is there is there a website that people should know about to kind of follow up? You you mentioned you have some new recordings in the works. Yeah. And uh, uh, I want people to be able to find those. Joanne McGowan, a, a pretty much a lifelong friend of mine, has a uh, Facebook page out there. I think there are 15,000 or so people plugged into that one. And uh, uh, she's also got a website, butcherrobbins.com. Um, one B and one B, a single B. Yeah, if you put in two, you used to get a real estate agent from Jekyll Island, Georgia. Yeah, that's what the whole shooting match is. It's out there. I mean, she's uh, she's put so much. She's we we had gotten when I used to go out on the road with Monroe. I carried a set of uh, about thirty or forty cassette tapes with me. Mm-hmm. And I'd bring them back home when I'd get them, and my dad would run them off on to reel to reels, blank them out, and send them back out on the road with me. So when they started that thing out in Ames, Iowa, for the preservation of all Monroe's live stuff that they could get their hands on, I donated all that stuff to it. And they sent me back, I think it was like 100 CDs of some of them of the tapes that they had got that they compiled off of those. I mean, some of those reel-to-reels, the old man had, had may have had four or five shows on them, especially where wow. we'd go on a TV show and only do like two tunes or yeah, something yeah. like that. There's a bunch of that. So uh, anyhow, she's been putting all that. She's got it all out there on a YouTube channel. Uh, and that way you can see Monroe and hear that rhythm chop on, especially the Austin City Limits is a good one to be able to see that on. That was like a... 34th day of a 35-day road trip oh, there. And and the YouTube channel, is that under your name as well? Is that how people find it? I think it is. Just look at, uh, go out and look at the Butch Robbins Facebook page, and I'm sure she's got it all listed there of okay. everything that she has Great, out there. Great, for sure. And um, that's it. Another other than that, you know, just um, make a joyful noise, you know. That's what this thing's all about. And, and trying to find that joy and you know, happiness inside ourselves, especially in such chaotic times as we're living now. Um, well, wonderful words to live by and wonderful words to uh, end the episode with, I guess. So, well, thank you so much, Keith. Yeah, thanks it's, again, Butch. It's been an honor. It's good to know that, uh, you know, I started this nonsense a lot of years ago. A half a century ago, I was looking at it. A half a century ago, I was, um, I think this a spring, a half a century ago, Spring Tour 73, I was out with Leon Russell. Mm. And that was my first experience in the New Grass Revival, working with them. When when I asked them if they wanted to go on the trip, I said, the only kicker you got is you got to take me with you because as a utility musician, I ain't never played for nothing like this before. Uh-huh. And uh, I got to go on there, but that's that was a half a century ago now. And I am so pleased that people still on occasion are listening and hearing some of the things that I've been out there to put put out. Yeah, and you got podcast people calling you up out of nowhere, wanting to come over and talk to you. What 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 can what you say? What a blessing in life to have. <laughs> I mean, people I've never met before tell me about all other ways. Tell me what the world's like out there now because I just, I've hermitized for a long time now mm-hmm. because I really, uh, I just think I'm a little bit lost in time, and that's all right. I'm okay with it. I'm fine with it. It's lonely. But I'm fine with it. Well, 
we'll help spread this around and um we'll just spread you know, the music you, you keep man. doing what you're doing and we're we're all enjoying it i can just say spread that much. the music that's the thing just i mean when you find the, the wonderful players out there help them every way you can all these youngsters that are coming on they're so accomplished these days man i mean just wonderful young talents that have had a chance by the time they're in their earlier mid-20s they've developed a word it had taken me 35 years to get there yeah you know? picking circles around everyone yeah and really incredible. great anyhow thank you so much we'll do it again someday my pleasure yeah i hope so Thanks, everyone, for joining me. That's going to do it for this episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. You heard a bunch of sound clips in this episode, and in order, they were Washington County by Butch Robbins, My Long Journey Home by the Monroe Brothers, Jambalaya by Leon Russell, 12 O'Clock A Sunny by Butch Robbins, Stony Lonesome by Bill Monroe, Pottersfield by Butch Robbins, Cry and Holy by Bill Monroe, Secrets by Billy Strings, and Jamboree by Butch Robbins. Thank you one more time to Michelle Myers. That's today's Patreon supporter of the show. Head on over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to become a supporter yourself or email the show at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. That's going to do it for me. I'll see you all next time. Cowboy.